kids can head out to exchange kids. Uh, kids, if you can just sign them out. I think they're heading out to the playground um, this time because the rooms have been overtaken on us. So, uh, so head out there and do that. That would be great. Before we start today, we're going to uh, have to do something very, very sad. We have to say farewell to Simone. This is your last meeting, Simone? Ah, she'll be next week. Sorry. Well, we still want to give you a little gift today because I thought today was going to be your last meeting. So please come on up. Simone's been with us now for quite a few years and she's... Oh, tripped over on the cords. Simone's been with us for quite a few years. Um, she's now relocating back to Melbourne. Melton? Melton? Yep. Come, come on down, Simone. Come on down. Yeah, the new price is right. <laughs> And uh, so she's going back there to be a little bit closer to the family and some support and uh, shifting with um, Hamish and Isla, so looking for schools. But you found the school now at this yeah, point? Yeah, um, Hamish actually started orientation at Melbourne Christian College on Friday um, and the transition was just, God just blessed us like you couldn't believe. He just slipped on in and made friends straight away and was taken under his wing and playdates offered that afternoon. And so okay. it was just... Yeah, it's all good. Amazing. Excellent what happens like that, isn't it? Just mm. sort of make some new friends and connections. Yeah. So Simone's happened the next couple of weeks she'll be gone and then transitioning, settling into Melton and then um, yeah, going from there. So look, it's sad to see you go, but here's a little gift from us Thank to you. say that we love you and want to see you keep going Christ and that we'll pray that all the best for you as you settle into the church there and uh, make new connections, new friends, and you'll promise to come up and visit us sometimes. We'll be here a lot. <laughs> we'll be here a lot. Okay, right. We're just going to quickly pray over Simone too as she does that too. So, Father, today we just want to thank you and bless you again that you are intimately involved in our lives. And as Simone takes this uh, transition in life and heads back down towards Melton and uh, relocates back there close to family and friends and a good support network as well, we pray God bless her in that. Help her, Lord, to uh, see much of Christ in those friends and those family. And help her, Lord, to be an influence of Jesus in their lives as well, we pray. Help her, Lord, as she settles into the church and settles Hamish into school and all those things take their place, that, Lord, she will know that you're there with her, guiding her, leading her and directing her every step. Father, we pray, bless her now, and we ask that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Good on you, Simone. No worries. <laughs> Okay, today uh, we are finishing off our series of um, commitment discipleship, and today we're going to um, take a, a talk out of uh, out of Matthew, Matthew chapter six, uh, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is. Our most incredible sermon there as he opened up what the kingdom of God was all about and gave some really uh, practical and direct teaching there on uh, God's kingdom and uh, how it is to live under God's rule and care in his kingdom and by his grace and through that. So we're going to take today's uh, talk from there. So if you've got your Bibles, you can head to uh, Matthew chapter 6 and uh, we will read from verse 19 through to uh, 24. Starting at verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. 
So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you. Jesus, for your words that were recorded uh, for us 2,000 years ago as you spoke those on the, uh, the side of the mountain to who knows a vast number of people and particularly the disciples at that time. Today we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring that word alive in our hearts as Jesus addresses money, as Jesus addresses our heart attitude towards money and finances and the income that you've given to us. Lord, perhaps sometimes a very touchy and difficult topic uh, but I pray today that your word will speak clearly uh, into our lives and your Holy Spirit will come and bring power to that word so that we will love and serve you with the money that you have given to us. God, I pray for your help now and I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this is the last of our talks here on, on discipleship and commitment. What we've been laying out here from Scripture is the key building blocks that help a disciple of Jesus Christ to grow and flourish as a follower of him and to grow in their personal walk with Christ. What we have is the Holy Spirit applies the gospel to our hearts and we respond with faith or trust in who and what Jesus has done for us as we become a disciple. And then the Holy Spirit further works in us through this transformation to deepen our understanding of Christ and to deepen our life in him. And then we talked about these disciplines or these faith-filled actions that we apply to our lives to actually work with God's Spirit and growing us as uh, followers of Him. And if we went back six or seven weeks ago, we started there with the Gospel. To become a disciple, you need to hear the Gospel and you need to respond to the truth of who Christ is and what He's done on the cross in paying the price of our sins. Now we looked at how a disciple grows in the Bible, grows directly and primarily in God's Word applied to our lives. Then we looked at prayer, then we looked at church community, gathered as the corporate body of Christ, gathering to encourage each other, to hear from God through his word and to uh, support each other. We spoke last week about service. God's gifted us all in various and many ways with different uh, skills and abilities so that we can serve him, serve each other, all for the glory of his name. And today we talk about giving, giving, gospel generosity. Gospel generosity with the finances and the resources that God has given us. It's the money talk. It's the one I said last week. I wasn't going to spring it on you by surprise. Uh, it's the money talk today. It's the talk that perhaps sometimes we don't want to hear about or perhaps we don't want to think about too much because sometimes we, as we think about money, it's something that's very close to our hearts. It's very close to our hearts. I can probably talk about a lot of things and with a certain amount of interest, but maybe not so much interest on some of those things, and they may not even touch the sides. I could talk about relationship with kids, and some of you might say, well, I haven't got kids, that's not really me. Or I could talk about marriage relationships, well, I'm not really married, that's not really me. But when I talk about money, it really does in some way touch every single person. It's a bit like if you say the word money, it's like the antenna goes straight up. It's like I've got their interest. Sometimes we might actually recoil a bit when I mention the word money. We might just get our wallet and just put it a little bit deeper in our pocket so we can't get at it. Or some of us might sit there and actually be with great interest to hear what Jesus has got to say about money. Uh, there's no question about it. You mention the word money and you'll get people's attention. I know with my own kids, as soon as I mention about a reward for a job, straight away I've got their attention. They're into it. They'll do it. 
If there's no reward, I may not get their attention at all. Money sometimes is the means of security for some people. Perhaps a lot of people uh, think highly about money in a secure way that makes them feel comfortable or secure. Perhaps you've watched the news at night time and you've heard a scenario like this. The Apex gang have trashed and ransacked houses once again in Melbourne. There's been a shooting in the gangland wars near a tattoo parlour with much violence taking place. Climate researchers have evidence that our greenhouse gases are rising rapidly and the earth is warming up. We need to be careful about how we use our environment. A suicide bomber has exploded a bomb belt and he's killed 53 people near a crowded market in Syria. By the way, also the Aussie dollar has risen against the greenback. Wall Street has closed 50 points higher, the Nasdaq's rose sharply and the Hang Seng has made big gains. We can all breathe a sigh of relief. The money's okay. It's, it's amazing how all the violence and mayhem that might take place early in the news seems to get overshadowed by the finance report later on. It's like, it's all right. The, money, the, the Aussie dollar's going up, so I'm feeling okay. It's incredible how money gets really, really close to some people as far as their security is concerned in life. And what, we're taught, what are we taught often at a young age? We're taught to get a little piggy bank, aren't we? And put our pennies and save them up and drop them in the piggy bank. We quickly get our kids to school and what's one of the first things they get in the first few years? They get to start up a savings account. They get to start us and put their few coins out of the piggy bank and into the savings account. Now, nothing wrong with careful, management, careful money management at all. It's a good thing. But at the same time, when we're doing that, we're communicating to our kids that money is really important. It's like it's a really precious possession. You've got to store it away safely somewhere. That's what we're communicating at the same time as good money management principles. Money for some people seems to be a measurement of happiness. As much as security or comfort, it can be a measure of happiness. If I just had the money to buy the things I want, I would be a far happier person. You know, if I could just buy that car that I've always dreamed about, if I could just get my hands on that steering wheel and sit in that car that I've always dreamed about, I'm sure I'd be really happy then. If you just gave me a limitless credit card where I could buy the outfit that I've been looking at for weeks and weeks and weeks online, and if I can get those really cool shoes to match, I'll feel complete, I'll feel really happy about what money can buy for me. Or if I could just get hold of that new computer, the latest software, the latest hardware, the best games, the right console, the virtual reality screen things they put in their head. If I could get all that, if I could have that, I'll be happy. That would make my day and I would be content. It's a common thing. If only I had more money, I would be happy. Benjamin Franklin from a few hundred years ago, given we we're talking about 400 years back, Benjamin was not quite that old, but Benjamin Franklin said this about money. Money has never made man happy nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more of it one has, the more one wants. Money has never made man happy, nor will it. Benjamin Franklin said that about um, 250 plus years ago. 300 years ago nearly. The reverse can happen as well when we lose our money. As far as some people finding their happiness in money, the reverse can happen when we lose it. If you ever followed some of the articles and the stories out of the global, global financial crisis from a few years ago, there was a huge amount of Japanese financial advisors who took their lives during that global financial crisis. Their whole life was wrapped up in money. Life to them was how much money they could make. And when they saw their stocks crash and their value of shares uh, plummet, uh, these guys had nothing else to live for. So they took their lives. 
What all this goes to show or to serve is that money is intrinsically or foundationally attached to our hearts. How we handle or how we deal with money really is a heart issue. It really gets to the core of who we are. It touches our very uh, innermost feelings and it produces amazingly strong responses. I mean, if we are incredibly tight with money or stingy, you'll see what sort of strong responses you'll get from somebody who's tight or stingy when it comes with money. You'll get some incredible responses. So this is why Jesus here is talking about money, because he understands what a challenge it is for us in this world. Jesus is the master teacher. He knows exactly what to talk about and how to uh, point us towards a transformed life in Christ. He knows exactly what takes hold of our lives and begins to tug us and pull us in different directions. So Jesus here talks about money and actually what he goes on to talk about is uh, how it has a direct relationship with where we stand with God as well. And you might be surprised to know that uh, Jesus actually talks more about money in the Bible than he does about heaven. You would think if Jesus, if he was trying to make something attractive, wouldn't he just want to talk lots about heaven? Well, he does talk about heaven, but he actually talks more about money than he does about heaven. So if it's really important for Jesus, it's obviously really, really important for us as well. Okay, so let's get back here to our passage to see where Jesus actually begins to direct us here as we think about this idea of money and how it takes hold of our heart. In the early part of the passage, Jesus is getting at uh, what we treasure or what we highly value and how we deal with it. And there's like two perspectives here that he gives us. And this first perspective is looking at these treasures from an earthly point of view. And in verse 19, he tells us that. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, uh, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The picture that Jesus is giving here is someone who is storing up and amassing a life of precious possessions that will keep he or she secure for the rest of their lives. And the idea here, it's an earthbound mentality, laying up these treasures on earth. It's an earth concept here, it's an earthly way of thinking. And perhaps this, this earthbound mentality is best pictured if you ever sat down with a financial planner. Probably some of you young people wouldn't have done that, but some of you older ones may have. And particularly when you sit down with a financial planner and you talk about your retirement, you get this very quickly, this earthbound mentality here when it comes to thinking about our finances. What they want to talk to you about, or the whole, position, whole proposition about the talk is, is with your money, is how you can have a risk-free and comfortable lifestyle that is really centred on you for the rest of your days. It will be a 20-year-plus lifestyle of pleasure, leisure and ease, filled with travel, whining and dining, and seeing all the sides that you put down on your bucket list. That's what will happen when you sit down with a financial plan and they try and actually put that perspective to you about how you're going to plan for your retirement. It's an earthbound centred mentality. It's thinking about money and what it can do for me from a perspective of a world-centred or me-centred perspective. And it's really ingrained into us from a very early stage. The government's really keen on getting us working on our superannuation and amassing all this money so we can have this comfortable retirement. It's an earthbound mentality when we think of that. We can just have all the things we can dream of if we just plan for it now and save all our hard-earned cash and put that aside and spend it then. What Jesus is saying here is don't build your life on thinking that this world has everything to ultimate to offer you in peace contentment and joy. 
don't build your life on that. Don't let your heart get attached and drawn towards this world and all it has to offer as though it, it will completely satisfy and fulfill you for the way God has made you. Don't build your life thinking that is where the ultimate reality of life is in this 20 year plus um, mass accumulation of funds so I can have this incredible retirement. Now it's not wrong to travel, it's not wrong to go out to have meals and it's not wrong to do any of those things but if we build our life on those things we will be sadly let down. Why? Because this world is broken and unstable that we live in. It really and truly is. Really in many respects this world is like a house of mirrors. It's just mere reflections of what the reality is. Sometimes it can be a whole lot of show but it sadly lacks in substance. The world promises much to satisfy us, to make us content and that we will need money to satisfy that. But in the end it delivers fleeting pleasures. Delivers fleeting pleasures. Yes, I've finally purchased that four-wheel drive SUV and I've got the ultimate dream caravan I've thought about in my retirement days. And now I'm going to spend the rest of my days just travelling around Australia and uh, sitting back and taking in the sights. That will be the ultimate for me. That will be retirement just how I planned it. And I've got all the cash to do that. But it's amazing how just within a few months of people sometimes entering into that retirement, the shine on the new car or the shine on the caravan has just dulled off a little bit. There's been a few scratches here and there and it's not giving me the same feeling that I felt the day I drove it off out of the showrooms a few months earlier. It's fleeting pleasures. Nothing wrong with a four-wheel drive SUV and nothing wrong with the caravan, but we don't build our lives thinking that's where life is and I need to amass and accumulate as much money as I can to get that retirement. That's not where it happens. Jesus gives an alternative investment though now. In verse 20 he says this, but, so not that one, but this one, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. What Jesus is saying here is this, we need to have another picture. We need to get another viewpoint. We need to see something else when it comes to the idea of investing our uh, lives into the kingdom of heaven and particularly our money. Jesus is saying, use the money that you are given to amass and accumulate pleasures and joy in heaven. Let's invest the resources and the finances and the, the possessions that God has given to us into kingdom purposes. Store them up, lay them up in God's kingdom. Why do that? Jesus answers, because he says in, these, in his kingdom, those investments are secure and eternal. No moth, no rust, no thief can destroy or steal. In Jesus' kingdom, there is nothing that fades over the course of time. Nothing fades over the course of time. In eternity, those treasures will be enjoyed in an increasing way. Not a fleeting way, but an increasing way. In Jesus' kingdom, there will be no uh, computer hackers who can get in and steal our life's savings away. Everything is safe in the kingdom of Christ. Now, Jesus says, if you place your treasures with me then you'll have them forever. They will be with you forever. Now you're probably asking now, well, what are those investments and how does it look? We will get to that in a moment. There's two ways that we can use our money. Two ways that God has given to us, that we can use the, the money that God has given to us. One is an earthbound desire, me-centered mentality, where it's all about me. It's all about how I can pad my own secure, comfortable retirement up or lifestyle here and now. Or the other way is I take a kingdom of Christ perspective and mindset to grasp that and to live that way. 
it becomes a hard thing. It becomes a hard thing. And Jesus actually goes here now really, really plainly. He says, what we treasure or value highly and most likely where we will spend our money to accumulate that treasure or amass that treasure, our heart will be attached to that. The very core of our being will be attached to it. And he says in verse 21 there, that very thing. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what we pour our time, energy and finances into is a good indication of what we treasure and what our heart is drawn to and what our heart will ultimately be attached to as well. If you want to get a good idea of that, perhaps have a look at your credit card statement or your bank card statement. Imagine if we could put that up there, we'd probably get a very good idea of what somebody's life was actually geared around or centred towards or attached to. If I valued fashion, you might see all sorts of things there. Now, I don't value fashion, but I know um, some fashion stores on the internet. You might see boohoo.com. You might see the iconic. You might see something else, something else. You could see very quickly a trail here. Oh, ah, we know where these people are going. They like a lot of things from these websites. Now, we love our dog. We absolutely love our dog. And you'll see on our credit card statement a $400 bill from last month. We thought our dog was bitten by a snake, so we raced her into the vet clinic and cost us $400 to get some sort of shot to fix her up. After all, she wasn't bitten by a snake, it turned out. But you can see from our credit card statement, we love our dog. We spent $400 on our dog. You can very quickly see where our money gets spent, what our heart is getting attached to, what our heart is getting drawn to. You might like cars. All of a sudden, we might see credit card purchase from Super Cheap Auto or Repco or Shannon's for car insurance, or it could be a whole lot. You can, you can track and trail what's happening with our heart simply by looking at our credit card statement, our bank statement. You can see a lot about that there. So Jesus nails it. He absolutely nails it. What we do with our money is absolutely connected to our heart. It's drawn to it. It's drawn to it. He goes on to say that our heart is the key here in using money wisely or unwisely. Verses 22 and 23 that Jesus goes on to say this. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Sometimes when you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you read through this passage, you sort of think, I don't think it fits here, does it? What's Jesus talking about? It seems like he's jumped thoughts here. What does, how does this fit in here with this idea of money, with this dark eye, good eye, bad eye? Jesus is talking about money here. What's the eye got to do with it? Well, the eye actually fits perfectly. The eye fits perfectly here in the way Jesus is uh, talking and communicating. The eye represents our perspective on life, or the eye represents how we view life, how we see life through our eye. Do I see this world from a God-centered perspective, or do I see this world from a me-centered perspective? Is it all about God, or is it all about me? How do I see this world? What's my eye like? My eye reflects my heart and how it perceives this world. So if my eye, heart, is healthy, that is that a heart that's been transformed by the gospel, if that's the healthy eye, the healthy heart, then the fullness of my life will use all that God has given me through all the resources and possessions to invest them for 
kingdom eternal purposes to glorify God through everything that, he's been, that I've been entrusted with from him. But alternatively, if my eye, the way I see this world, is a me-centered perspective, hasn't been not transformed, it'll be a different look of how I will actually go about my spending of money in this world. All of a sudden, I will use all the God-given resources to me to satisfy my wants and my desires. And it won't be from a God-centered perspective. It'll be a darkened eye that's not seeing clearly into this world and whose world it really is and the money and the resources that God has given to me, whose they really are. Jesus puts us further again. He doesn't just leave it there. He says, actually, it's getting down to two masters. Who will you serve? Will you serve money or will you serve me as your master? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus takes it further. He, he actually says you're putting your trust in one thing or the other. You're serving one thing or the other. Something is controlling your life. One thing or the other. What is it? Is it God or is it money? Will I trust God with my life and all the possessions he's given me? Or will I trust money with my life and what it can do for me? Jesus brings it down to a very clear decision here. Who am I serving? What am I serving? Is it God or is it this money that um, I'm using to satisfy my wants, my desires? So Jesus, he gets it close to the heart here and says, this is really a picture of where your life is going. Is it a life lived for God or is it a life lived for yourselves? Our hearts must be ruled by Christ if we are ever, if we are ever to use our money well and to know that we can trust Jesus with our very, very life. How does all this look? How does all this look? What does a heart trusting in Jesus look like when it comes to money? How do I invest in heaven or how do I invest in in God's kingdom. Now money's a challenging thing to talk about. I haven't spoken about it, I think I said last week, for five and a half years. Sometimes I get this perception if we talk about money, everybody will get the wrong idea about the church. It's just this challenging thing. Well then how do I use it? And then I think about, well Jesus, you actually spoke lots about money. So it's really relevant. It's really pertinent. It's really something that is close to our hearts that we need to surrender before you. It's really, really important. Because we can all recognise the comfort and safety and security that money begins to have in our heart and the way it begins to direct our heart, we can recognise how it really grabs a hold of us and sort of just latches onto us. But then what does a heart look like that begins to break the stranglehold that the love of money can easily infect every one of us with? How do I show that we are trusting in Jesus with our money? Okay, to invest in heaven is to do this, is to do all that we can do to see people become disciples of Jesus Christ. To invest in heaven is to do all that we can do to see people become disciples of Jesus Christ. There's no bank accounts in heaven, so it's not like I can just sort of, you know, cable some money up to God there and say, can you just please put it in the bank up there? There's no bank accounts in heaven. We will not enjoy heaven because of how much money I've sort of deposited up there. That's not what it's all about at all. The absolute supreme enjoyment of heaven will be Jesus Christ. That will be the supreme enjoyment of heaven. It will be Jesus Christ. 
It will be not any possessions I may have put up there in a, in a physical sense. The supreme enjoyment of heaven will be Jesus Christ. So the riches that I want to store in heaven will be, how can I bless Christ and how can I lead others to Christ so they can enjoy this supreme treasure that we have in Jesus? Because as I do that, that will in turn grow my own joy in Christ as I point others towards him. That's how we invest in heaven. We use all the God-given resources that he has given to me to turn around now and use these to glorify Jesus and to point other people towards him so they will become disciples and discover this same joy in Christ. Because that brings glory to him and when he is glorified in my life, I am more and more satisfied in him and more and more do I enjoy him. I treasure Christ. If I treasure Christ, I want to do all that I can with my money to make him look great. That's how I invest my money in heaven. I do all that I can. Here comes the $64,000 question while we're talking about money. Well, so how much money should I give for this joy of seeing others become followers of Jesus? It's the question you've all been waiting for. Well, how much? How much do I invest? How much do I spend on doing things for, to help make disciples of Jesus so they can get to enjoy this supreme treasure in Christ so that I can actually get to enjoy him in an increasing way as well? How much do I give? Big question. The Old Testament worked under a tithing system. In Leviticus, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commanded the people to give a percentage of their income. It was the way God led them through the wilderness and what Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was given to them. And they were, there were about three offerings that they were required to make in the Old Testament. Their total of offerings and tithes worked out to be roughly 23 to 24% of their income. 23 to 24% of their income was to be directed towards God and the uh, worship of him. We're all getting pretty nervous now, aren't we? 23 to 24%? Are you serious? Well, we don't live under the Old Testament, do we? Now you're all breathing a sigh of relief. <laughs> but that's what they were. They were 23 to 24% of their income was to be given to God for worship for him, for caring for the poor and the underprivileged in all sorts of ways. Everybody was required to give 23, 24% thereabouts. We live under the New Testament. What does the New Testament say? Well, we have a couple of references in the New Testament that actually give us a giving principle here in that. Romans 12, 8 is the, the first one. It says in there, verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who, acts of, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul's talking there about these gifts that God places upon the body. And one of them there is a gift of contribution. Contributing. That could be any number of ways. Most certainly money would be involved there. So what does Paul say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there? To one who contributes in generosity. Key word, generosity. 2 Corinthians 8, 1-3, another reference here where Paul is talking about a church giving. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, so these guys are in a hard way, their abundance of joy, their joy came from this severe test of affliction, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, of their own free will offering. 
key word there, generosity. So the New Testament principle when it comes to giving, call it tithes, call it offerings, the key word there is generosity. Generosity. The gospel produces generosity within us as we respond to what Christ has done for us at the cross. So when we see the, the God-given resources to us, whether it be money or whatever it may be, we, with generous hearts, give them back for the purposes of seeing his kingdom grow and extended and uh, to see disciples made so they can enjoy Christ. Okay, what's the question then for generous? What is generous? How does that look? How does generous take shape? You're all wondering what I've got under here, so let me show you perhaps a bit of an illustration I saw a few weeks ago about generosity. Your mouth is up in the water, isn't it? Good apples, these. There's a hundred apples there. Let's say those hundred apples resent, uh, represent all of my income. I have a weekly wage, I might have a few shares, I might have um, some properties where I get some rental income from, I might sell some stuff on eBay, I might sell some stuff on Facebook. Just say a hundred apples represents all of my income, everything I receive, even a tax return, whatever, everything that comes to me in a monetary sense. Here it is in 100 apples. So how about we start with the idea of 10% as a tithe. The Bible talks about a tithe. A tithe means 10%. Let's start that as a, as a, as a baseline of thinking, what does generous look like? So let's, let's grab 10 apples here. Are you counting, eh? I've got to pull the right apple out too, otherwise it'll all fall down. Two more. Gee, they started to move then too. There's ten apples. That doesn't look too bad, does it? So there's ninety. That's mine. Well, it's God's, but it's mine to use. And here's ten. I'm going to give ten to God. Look generous? Not too bad. Sometimes though we look at these ten apples... And we say, I have worked really hard for these apples. I've put in a 50, 60 hour week sometimes. Blood, sweat and tears. I've had to put up with a really bad boss. Actually, I'm going to take four apples back. Because I have worked so hard for these apples. I, I just don't think I can give 10 away that easily. That's a big pile of apples there, isn't it? There's like um, 94 apples sitting there. So I've given six to God now. What would you call that if I took those four away? What, would, what sort of word would you might be used to describe that? Greed, yeah. Tight-fisted. You think that's a big pile of apples there and I've actually just reduced what I was going to give to God a bit more. Hang on. I've got to put kids through university. I don't know what big bills are around the corner. There's still six apples there. I'm not, I think I'm going to need some more. Oh, I'm going to take four more apples away. I'll take three. Because I'm not sure what bills are going to happen in the future. I think I need, I think I need these 97 apples. I think, oh, God, you'll have to do the best you can with three. It's a big pile of apples, isn't it? What would you call that pile there? 
in comparison to this pile? Pretty small. Sad, yeah, that's a word. You'd probably call it stingy, wouldn't you? God, you've given me a hundred apples and the best I can give to you is only three. So it's probably a good indication I'm not really trusting in God. I'm probably not really seeing how the gospel's working in my heart. I'm probably not really seeing how generous God has already been to me because these whole hundred apples are all his. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can do anything he likes in this world. It's all his. And God, how can I start to be generous back to you? I think a really good place to start with that is 10 apples. 10%. That's still a big pile over here, isn't it? That's only 10%. Generosity, I think, starts at 10% as a baseline. It's a foundation that we can start with. We can take 10% of all of our income and we can invest that with God to see people become disciples of following Jesus. So where do I invest that money? Another good question. Where do I put it? Where do I put this 10% of all that God has given to me? Well, the first 10% you have should go to your local church. It should go to the church that you're connected to because that's your local church, particularly here at Exchange, is looking to spend that money to make disciples, to grow disciples in Jesus Christ. It should go to the church first, the local church where you are connected with. But you might say, Todd, I've got sponsor kids, I've got missions, I've got all these other things that I do outside of the church. What, what about them? Well, I'd say that's great. I'd say, well done. Be encouraged to support sponsor kids. Do lots of that if you can. Get into missions, do heaps of things there. But I'd also say this, you don't have to stop at 10%. You can give 10% to the church. And you can give extra for sponsor kids, for missions and anything else. The first 10% I believe should go to the church because that's the place where you're being fed, supported and encouraged and built up. That's the place that you're connected to as a primary centre within the body of Christ. Send that 10% to the church and if you want to do other things, I'm sure God will bless you and give the ability to still supply for missions or other people. It's a great thing. Above your 10%, go and uh, support those other things. The church has costs to cover in running as a church to be committed to uh, making disciples. The bills have to be paid. We want to support gospel workers and we want to supply resources to help make disciples so we can invest into the kingdom of heaven, so we can invest into joy. There's two areas here in this church that we are invested into right now. really is just the general expenses, first and foremost. We have to pay for the rental of this building. We have to supply resources, music equipment. All those things are geared for making disciples. Secondly, as a church, we're committed to global missions. We have two missionaries that we support at this stage. So what we do as a church is we take 10% of our budget and we take all the 10% of all that income and we direct that towards global missions. There's two things straight away that the church is involved in that takes resources. Those things don't come out of thin air. And we thank God and bless God for everyone who contributes already to those uh, to those funds. There's a third area that really isn't that far away at all for us and there's potentially the plan for a building program as well, either rented or purchased. 
we'll know here that there's um, possibly have to shift in the next six or seven weeks from this building as it undergoes renovations. And we're already as a board looking for other options and venues. And that's a third one that's not happening at the moment, but very quickly will come into our headspace as we think about where do we go as a body of Christ seeking to reach out and to invest into this community with the gospel for their joy and for our joy with the resources that God has given us. Guys, having money isn't wrong. So don't, don't get that thought at all from today's talk as we think about that. It's not wrong to have money at all. Being wealthy isn't wrong at all. It's great if you can be wealthy. If that's you, God has blessed you so that you can do much to grow and support the gospel through those finances or wealth that God may have given you. So don't feel, if I'm rich, is that wrong? No, not at all. Not at all. The Bible talks about the love of money being the root of all evils, not the money itself. It's how our heart deals with it. So what do we do? We start with 10% of our income. 10% of our income. And we invest that for our joy into God's kingdom so we can see disciples grow as Christ. 10% of your income. And if you're parents, I'd say teach your kids this at a really, really young age. We've done that with our kids. Whatever you make, if you work at Macca's, they sell some fruit off the side of the road sometimes during the summer. Whatever they do, part-time jobs, pocket money, whatever it is, teach them from a young age to give 10% as a foundation, as a start, as a guiding principle to uh, part of our worship back to God. And it will be a good habit that they learn through life and they'll just be able to uh, freely give it in a sense as they know they respond to what God has done to them. Gospel generosity count over their money is a fantastic way the committed disciples of Jesus Christ can honour and glorify him. Gospel generosity is a fruitful way that we can grow in Christ as we trust him with our money. And it'll be hard initially to part with it, but as you do learn to part with it, it's a liberating feeling as well that we are trusting in Christ with all that he's given to us. And gospel generosity is an investment for our joy in eternity with Christ. Money is a challenging, challenging thing. It's the very reason why Jesus talks about it here today. But I can tell you, if we surrender to Christ in every aspect of our lives, uh, we will see him grow larger and larger within us to uh, see his glory spread throughout this great shepherd and uh, community that we live in. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you today that we can... Uh, come and uh, gather around your word. Thank you today that you speak to us so clearly uh, through the book of Matthew, through the Holy Spirit, through you, Jesus. Uh, today we pray that you'll uh, work in our hearts when it comes to this idea of money. It is such a challenge, Lord. I know even this week, uh, as I've been preparing this message, and I know even as Laurel and I have been talking about it the last couple of weeks, how we want to reassess and relook at our giving again. God, I really pray that you will uh, work in our hearts for your glory and for our good. God, I pray that you will help us to become joyful, cheerful givers who are uh, totally and wholly trusting in you with our finances. God, we have so many things that are looking for our interest of our hearts. So many things that are saying, if you just invest some money here, or if you just spend some money there, that I will promise to deliver you some type of happiness or some form of pleasure. So many things, Lord. God, sometimes we can look at our 10% and we can think that's too much to give you. But God, when we think about what Christ gave for us in surrendering up his life, it is nothing really at all. 
Today, Lord, I pray, help us. Help us to invest for our joy with the finances and the money that you've given to us to see disciples made for you, we pray. Lord, I ask that and I pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Any questions? Uh, that's right, and that's the two perspectives that Jesus spoke about. It's, it's either this earthbound mentality or it's this actually kingdom of God perspective. And that's the perspective that Jesus wants us to get is, is the big picture, not the small picture. And the amount that we give is not important. And Jesus illustrated that with um, the widow who gave the might. There was you know, a rich man and the widower. He, he put in you know, his bit and the widower put in probably a tiny little portion compared to the rich person. But Jesus recognised the hard attitude behind what the, uh, the widower had given. Okay, Doug's going to come and lead us around the table now as we just uh, think about Christ and uh, think about him who made it all possible. Thanks, Doug. That it? Good, good. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Um, I'm really thankful that the financial advisor that I had quite a few years ago when we were planning for retirement was a Christian man and uh, he understood the concept of giving so I'm very thankful for that. He was also the owner of a very fine Riley motor car so um, he understood my passion there too. Um, if you bear with me, I'd love to share with you a devotion from this book that I'm running through at the moment by Andrew Womack, Every Day with Jesus. Um, it, it's something I've, I've always loved to share with you. Um, oh, thanks, guys. I forgot to remind you to start dishing that out. Um, I'm coming about 30 years after the events that Ben shared with us this morning. Um, reading from Luke's Gospel, we go to the 13th day of the first month, probably around about AD 30. The 13th day of the first month, we celebrate that now as the Thursday before Good Friday. Jesus said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. And after taking up the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
And quite a few thousand years ago, uh, before this event, um, we go back to the original Passover meal on the same day, the 13th day of the first month of the Jewish year. On the night of the original Passover, the Lord passed through the land of Egypt and judged the land by slaying all the firstborn men and beasts. To avoid this judgment, each Jewish family had to slay a spotless lamb, take its blood and apply it to the doorposts of their homes. They were commanded to remain indoors under the covering of this blood until morning. And when the Lord passed through the land at midnight to execute his judgment, he passed over the homes that had the lamb's blood on the door. Andrew goes on to say that this is a perfect picture of the redemption that Jesus provides for us through his blood. Jesus was sacrificed on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish year, the exact day and time that the Passover lambs were being slain at the temple. Truly, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. What an amazing sacrifice. And we worry about a few apples. That's just amazing. Can we take the bread and take the wine and just with joyful and thankful hearts remember that sacrifice Jesus made for us? Jesus, we come to you with a thankful heart. We thank you that through your sacrifice, through your blood, we do not stand in judgment. Because our sins have been forgiven and washed away, we are no longer under judgment, but now under the grace of our Lord God. And we thank you, Jesus. We just thank you with all of our hearts. Amen. Thanks, Doug. Um, we'll get the uh, the uh, worship group to come back and just lead us through with one song. And just to show our generosity today, you're welcome to come and take as many apples as you like from this uh, these tables here too. So uh, please, I don't want to take any home. Um, come and uh, help yourself. If you want to see me about anything or you want some prayer, uh, I'm certainly available and would love to catch up with you um, straight after the service as well. Thanks.